all that stuff that goes into making a movie goes into making a game plus like 10,000 more things. And people have to be able to touch it and like change it. Like you still need producers, you still need writers, you still need people who know how to operate a camera. You need all the stuff that makes up a movie, but now they also have to like be really good at math. <laughs> Hello and welcome to Why Button, the podcast that asks why we care about video games. I'm your host, Kyle Starr. On this show, I interview creators, enthusiasts, journalists, and media personalities about their origins with video games, what keeps them so interested in the medium, and what excites them about the future. On this episode, I had the extreme fortune of chatting with Paul Levering and Paul Owens of Two Player Productions, some of the folks behind Double Fine's incredible Psychonauts 2 documentary, Psych Odyssey. It's an incredibly detailed look at what it takes to create a modern double A or triple A game, not only from the art, design, engineering, and production of it all, but most importantly, the people behind it. The Pauls discuss what they learned making a documentary over the course of seven years, as well as why they're so interested in documenting the culture of video games. Before we jump into the episode, a quick shout out to Danny Bogue, who recently guested on the DLC podcast. There's a brief moment about halfway through the episode where I talk about finding it challenging to play turn-based games these days. Well, I stole that from him. Thanks, Danny. Paul Levering and Paul Owens, Paul's Levering and Owens, I guess I could say. You could, you could say that. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you for joining me on Y Button. Oh, thanks. Thanks for having us. I could go into, uh, I, I could tell your story if you really wanted to. I think I've done a little bit of research, but I'd rather you all introduce yourselves <laughs> to the to the audience of Y Button. So Paul, should I refer to you as Paul L and Paul O, Paul 1, Paul 2? How do you all differentiate? Clevering uh, and Owens? <laughs> no. Uh, no one, no one calls me that. It's all context. You just say Paul and then you'll. we just know which one you're talking to. Okay. <laughs> Paul, tell me a little bit about yourself. It's obviously levering. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so um, uh, me and um, Owens, uh, we met in high school, and um, we sort of bonded over like a mutual love of like games and movies. And um, it actually wasn't until years and years later on down the road, we sort of reconnected. And uh, Paul had been doing some work, doing behind the scenes, uh, shooting on films, and um, I, I was like barely doing anything. I was maybe managing a GameStop or working at Trader Joe's, like something like that. But like I, I wanted to do something, move my life in a different direction. So I started talking to Paul about applying behind the scenes style film to like video game development because um, we both really cared about games and it was immediately like very appealing to try to like find a way to get into that, that industry and tell some stories about how games are getting made. Nice. Po yeah, Poems? Well yeah. <laughs> yeah, growing up, kind of from a real, real small town in Jersey over there. And uh, yeah, I always felt like the people's appreciation of games and movies was always like a little subdued over there. And just like, come on, isn't this great? Let's read these video game magazines and talk about these movies, right? And no one seemed interested. <laughs> so Levering was like the one person in high school that was like, you know, actually poured over the video game magazines with as much fervor and, you know, could appreciate the uh, you know, you can talk about Ocarina of Time. You know, you could go on for an hour. You know? I brought my um, I brought my VMU from my Dreamcast <laughs> to school because I was like, I'm gonna trade, you know, my Sonic uh, chows with uh, people, and yeah, I'm like the only person in the entire school that has one. So it's, that was the world I was living in. We'll we'll get into that I think much in much more detail uh, a bit later. Um, but this 
sort of feeling comes up quite often on the show. And it's a big reason why I started the show too, is sort of exercising that, that demon um, that I have about, you know, talking about this, even in my close circles, like, am I, is it okay if I talk about this as something more than just a toy or a fun experience? Right. And you all are taking this, um, I think to another level with the documentaries that you have been putting out most notably, and most recently the double fine, um, psych odyssey documentary, which I just finished the other day. And then immediately, soon as I finished, immediately went back and started watching the Double Fine Adventure, which was nice. the, the documentary mm. right before that, uh, which I think is actually the preferred way to watch these together. It's it's actually an interesting thing to see the people um, before the, in the prequel. <laughs> it's like um, a prequel. Yeah. 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 Um, <laughs> but I, I guess I should say first and foremost, congratulations on the documentary. It is, it's a fantastic watch and I can see myself watching this over and over and over again. Thanks. Wow. Thanks. You should work on it because then you do have to watch it over and over again. <laughs> yeah, sure. <laughs> I can still watch it. I feel like I can still put it on and have some fun with it. Other other stuff we've done, it's like, I don't never want to see that. Like the Minecraft doc, I haven't watched in 10 years maybe. But mm-hmm. this, I'm like, I, I put it on every once in a while and watch an episode and I still still enjoy it. It's yeah. mean so, so good and such a cool view into uh, into the world of game development, especially, of course, at Double Fine um, specifically. But it's very eye-opening to somebody who's not immersed in the actual creation of video games, but has an appreciation for it. I went on, I think, a pretty decently sized identity crisis about like, who am I? and What do I want to be professionally and career-wise? And then looking at the games industry, like where could I fit in that world? Um, and looking specifically at like, well, you could be an artist or you could be an engineer or you could be a producer. And that was basically it. And I'm like, do I fit any of those categories? But then seeing, I think what you all have produced and, and seeing the, the scope of what each of these individuals do, uh, is very, uh, eye-opening. The full, how much footage did you, did you shoot? Do you know, like, like quantified hours? We've thrown around like for just a psych odyssey, like maybe 5,000 hours on like the cameras and then the <sighs> When, when, when COVID happened, we transitioned to Zoom and actually recorded more like per day. Yep. So uh, I don't know, thousands. Were you editing as you were filming or did you get to the end, games out, time to edit? Or? We were editing as we went, but it was always a losing battle where it was like we were filming way more than I could like watch and edit and stuff. But some stuff you knew wasn't worth it. It was like, okay, that meeting was okay. Other meetings was like, that was crazy. We need to edit that right now. So... You could be an editor in the moment, you know, and be like, okay, we need to cut this and this is going to go here and there and that. And so that helped. Um, It helped to be the cameraman and the editor and really be able to like eliminate stuff on the fly. There were a lot of meetings where we'd all come out of them and just look at each other and be like, what just happened? (laughs) In those meetings, do you find it difficult to stay objective uh, to the documentary and, and sort of out of the personal and professional lives and decisions of the subjects you're filming? Like when you're in meetings, um, sitting around a table with, with Tim and everybody, and they're trying to decide, you know, on a direction, you've obviously been in a lot of these same meetings and seen things progress. Do you have influence? There's even moments in the documentary where, where folks will ask you your opinions on things and your perspective on things. Is that a difficult line to toe? Jeez. I mean, once you get beyond the shooting of it and you're three years removed from that event and you're just looking at the footage and you're trying to make the audience understand what they need to and and show the interesting stuff, a lot of that kind of goes out the window because you're just like, okay, that's this just needs to be, we need to move through this. I mean, you know, it kind of just becomes a movie, you know? But when you're shooting it, it you do think about that kind of stuff and it's like, how's this going to play out? How are we going to deal with this? But later on, when you just have the footage and you got to make it work, it sort of becomes a different thing almost. And you have to 
sort of approach it like any other movie and just like, does this make sense? Is this interesting all the way through? And, you know, but I think Levering pays attention to the morality of it all and will we'll be like, hey, you know what? Maybe this isn't so good. Whereas I feel like I'll be more like, okay, let me just try to make this like the most entertaining thing possible, you know? Well, it's kind of like, it's like what Paul's saying, the moment of having it happen is so different from having to deal with it later on, you know, down the, down the road. But um, everybody has their like bad days and it's important to sort of remember that that is probably just a bad day. And it's like, oh, well, somebody did something here that would be like kind of dramatic to put in there. But it's like, yeah, but do we need to do that to them? Because that's what point, what purpose does that serve? Um, I, f I feel like um, moment to moment, you're having these emotional experiences. But what it comes down to is like the overall, like that person's entire story. And almost always everybody is like a complex uh, person and you know they have different motivations and different things that they're dealing with it's causing them to act certain ways so it's important to sort of maintain that idea that like we should you know try to be fair to everybody and it's important to show them being kind of bad because they will redeem themselves because that's what everybody does so even if somebody is kind of making a mistake or having a bad day like maybe some of that goes in there just to show how they can bounce back from it and recover and you know grow as a person there's an element of creating the artifice of drama because somebody did something one day. And like you said, levering, it's, you know, everybody has a bad day and you could easily capture that and say, look at how awful this person is or, or, you know, what turmoil happened because of that. But that's not really the story. That's, that's that MTV moment. That's that now I'm throwing MTV under the bus, but that's that, <laughs> that moment of like, um, maybe I'll throw, uh, my wife and I are watching the, uh, love Island UK. That's mm -hmm. our, uh, you know, yeah. let's turn yeah. our brains off for a bit and watch some reality TV. You can throw that under the bus. That's yeah. Fine. So yeah, there's the moments in there where it's like, there's no reason for them to do this other than to make yeah. that person look bad. Right. And it's so but, obvious too when I watch those where it's like they just edited these two two desperate things together and it's just like what what's right. going on like it's it's so manufactured that it's sort of after watching our stuff for so long I watched that and was like oh my god this is really messed with here and I also don't want to throw reality tell uh, you know yeah talk, talking shit on everyone else <laughs> the, the, the thing is it's like there are, there are talented people who like work on these shows but it's like a completely different goal of like what they're trying to do. And it's mm -hmm. like unfair to compare our mm -hmm. stuff to their stuff because these are two completely different worlds. And like all the people who work at Double Fine did not come to Double Fine because they wanted to be on a show. And it's like people at Love Island, they came to Love Island to be on Love Island. <laughs> it's not like they're just on their vacation at Love Island and then the camera crew showed up. Could you <laughs> like, imagine? Yeah. Uh, so it's, you know, all that stuff is extremely manufactured. And like we are a like pure documentary like that's like what we're doing. We're just covering reality, but we're covering it to an extent that I think does kind of confuse us with like a reality show because I, I don't think even outside of like game development, I, I don't know if anyone has done stuff to the extent that we've done. I, I, I can't think of anything where people have been like filmed for 10 years yeah. every day. And we're kind of still in psychotasy land because we're still promoting it and trying to get as many eyes on it. and doing supplemental content for it. So it's been had a, like a weird, like long tail where it feels like we're just kind of hanging on. So it feels like a weird in-between time for me where it's just like, ah, we haven't really started the next thing. We're still in the old thing. It's in the middle. Yeah. It's shockingly hard to promote something that's free for the world to watch on YouTube. <laughs> it, it isn't trying to sell a product or <laughs> like a service. It's, we, we did this for humanity. Like, yeah. don't check it out, humanity. It's like, it's really hard to get people's attention. 
do you have goals for the documentary in terms of how many eyeballs you want on it or is it meeting the marks you want? Do you, do you care? I mean, I'm sure you do at some level. I mean, I've kind of said before that I wanted to be able to notice some sort of shift in like gaming culture. And um, I see the tiniest little bits of that. And like that is very fulfilling where there'll be some argument on Twitter that's like pretty dumb. And like somebody will be like, hey, you know, I, I watched this, like Odyssey and uh, I, have a, I have a better opinion of this. And or, I, I'm never going to say anything like bad about games getting made again because it's not, clearly very hard. So I want to see like more of that. I want to see like more understanding. I also just kind of want us to break out of games and I want people who like TV shows and people who like movies to just watch this as it's like an office drama about like the, the creative process and that there's just, you know, funny, normal people making them. Yeah, I think the weird thing with when you're making anything is that I feel like the line keeps getting moved for you where in the early days it was like, okay, we're going to make this movie and it's going we're going to make, it's going to be like our movie and it's going to be like a real movie. And that was like incentive enough, just like we're making a movie just like everyone else, guys. And then it comes out and you're like, oh, wouldn't it be great though if like more people saw it or like it got into more film festivals or won awards? Like, and no matter where we get, it always seems like there's another better thing we could be doing. And with Psychodicy, it was like, God, okay, we just need to make this. It's going to be so crazy just to have made this. And then it's like, okay, is it going to be it out? It's like, okay, it got released. And now it's like, oh, now we need a ton of people to watch it. And then we need a ton of people to like tell us how good it is. And it's like this ever moving thing where you're just never happy with what's going to happen with it. And you just have to like move on at a certain point. But I'll stop caring after a million, million yeah, views. We'll, we'll million stop views, caring Paul. after a little bit. But it is a weird thing where just like the line keeps getting further away. And it's just like you're never really satisfied with it. Yeah, it's, it's just such a cool, cool experience um, to, to watch that. Um, I set aside all gaming activities just to focus on watching that documentary. And, and the people I tell it to are not people who play game to tell to watch it are not people who play games. I've been sort of telling it to um, different managers that I work with and to different leaders I work with to say like, you know, this is sort of a masterclass in, in, you know, corporate culture or, you know, tech life or again, leadership and management. Um, just looking through the eyes of Tim and the other producers on the project. Yeah. Uh, it's, you can glean a lot from it and not have to care about games. There's just so much in there. It's so rich with all that, that sort of stuff. So I, I think just in terms of the leadership angle. Yeah. I mean, I don't think anyone, I mean, I don't think I really thought about what it actually takes to be a leader that can inspire people. And I think I thought about it. Yeah. Tim's the boss. He tells people do what to do or whatever. But there really is some weird X factor with with the leadership that uh, I don't know. It made, made me really think about it, what, what it takes, and it was cool to see Tim step up and be that person. So pretty fun. Would you consider doing a condensed version of it? When we talk about getting a million viewers, you know, again, if that's a goal or not, um, I also think about the you're asking for a commitment of about was it 22 hours of people? Is it 22 hours? Yeah, 32 episodes. Uh -huh. 22 hours? You're asking for that commitment in people, um, not to say they don't do it with other, you know, television shows and, and, and you know, with what they're watching. But we're not used to a 21 season uh, series these days anymore. Everything's condensed down to eight episodes. Um, would you ever do a condensed version of it, like a, a shorter cut? Whew. That's rough. So we, we attempted this with the Broken Age, with the Double Fine Adventure, and um, it didn't really work. Mm. And um, there's actually like a review I really like. I th I'm pretty sure it was a Twin Geeks review um, mm -hmm. for Psych Odyssey. That's like, it really calls to point that like, part of what makes the doc good is how long it is. 
And I think that I agree. when we try to shrink something down, it's just all the narrative beats that are in that series are there for a reason. And when we're cutting them out, then we're telling a different story. So it's not the same doc anymore. And like, I don't even know if that's a story that we could tell because this is the thing that we faced with a broken age doc is it just has to be about Tim. It's like when you cut something down that much, it really needs to kind of be about a single person. But when there's all these things happening, I don't know. I don't know if there's like a compelling experience in there. Yeah, it's stuff's lost the moments and you remember how the moment felt in the larger context of like the double fine adventure like when i squeezed it all down there was a moment in in that where like anna kipnis is like working so hard she gets sick and in the series it's like a big big deal and you're like oh no anna but in when you cut it down to 90 minutes it's like who was that oh that yeah that was the girl right yeah i hope she's okay like it's just not the same thing and maybe there's an exercise to give it to someone else and be like Mm. you do this because it is really hard for for us Maybe just because we know, we see through the screen and we see everything else that happened and everything that got cut and maybe we're not the ones to do it, maybe, you know? Maybe it's just too weird, painful to do it, but it would be interesting to watch it. But yeah, I don't know, I think I think it's gotta be long just based on the strengths of the doc, you know? But who knows, who knows? Sort of curious how you all both got into filmmaking. It sounded like uh, Owens, you, you and I'm, I'm just gonna refer- can I just refer to you by your last Please, names? Yeah. Is that, is that working? Yeah. Um, <laughs> Owens, it sounded like you were doing some filmmaking work and then Levering, you you sort of caught back up with, with Paul and, and decided you wanted I, to get people to become rode, part of it. I right? rode Paul's uh, coattails. <laughs> As any good friend does. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> advantage of it. Um, um, how did you get involved with, with film, Owens? Jeez. I mean, you know, I always dug it, but uh, I didn't really think that I could uh, do it really until, you know, I had like a broadcasting class in high school where... We got to really mess around with the cameras and the editing and, and uh, yeah, I don't know, it just, it, I just devote, wanted to devote time to it, which was a new concept to me in terms of school. Like usually I'm just like, okay, I can get by doing this or doing that. But this was like, I was thinking about it after school and like really putting time into it. And I was like, I think I love this stuff. And yeah, I felt like I was good at it. And then I, so yeah, I just went to school for it. And that's where I met uh, Asif, who's the uh, other co-founder of Two Player. And like Paul said, we kind of got involved with shooting behind the scenes on movies and stuff like that. And we liked that, but it was never like, ah, it was, I don't know, it's not, it wasn't great. It wasn't great. Long hours, really long hours. It's just, it's it's rough on a film set. And uh, so we had that experience though. And we, yeah, I met up with Paul and was kind of like, ah, maybe we can apply this to games. And then I was like, I know this guy, Asif, he would be great, you know, so... Yeah, it kind of happened real fast. Like it was like in literally like an afternoon, we brainstormed everything. We had the name, we had the mission, the concept. And, and then Asif was like, yeah, let's do it. Cause I mean, we didn't have very much going on at all at this point, really. It was just like kind of post college and we were looking for anything really. So. Sure. We didn't have anything to lose, but like time, <laughs> you know? And so it, was, it took a while before we actually started to invest like real money into like actually having a company, but we would just do as much as we could in our spare time as we worked other jobs. And, you know, we um, immediately all sort of clicked and um, I had to learn how to like use a camera and edit. And um, I I had, you know, I had grown up appreciating film and not just watching film, but like caring about it and kind of like studying it. And I feel like I grasped stuff fast enough and, you know, I would still just be we found our positions and like what we were good at and we just kind of stuck to it. And 
the three of us worked together really well. So it, it managed to work out as long as it did. I guess specifically with your documentary and your style, are there, are there documentaries or films that you all look to for inspiration? You know, I have, I have an odd choice on that where um, on the, uh, the Phantom Menace DVD, there's, it's only an hour long, but mm. basically it's called The Beginning and it's just a fly on the wall documentary. There's no, not even any interviews, I don't think, about the making of The Phantom Menace. And I think there's just an honesty there that really takes you off guard. Like there's a moment where they look at the rough cut of the movie and they're like, wow, this really sucks, right? And I'm just like, how did they allow this to go out? And why, why would they let why would they let people see this? And I think that's like the that feeling that we I love to get in the double fine doc where it's like, how, why did they let this go out? Or like, how did we get away with seeing this? And I don't, I really don't know how how they did it on the Phantom Menace one, and I, I'm not sure how we got away with it on the double fine one either. But uh, there's something about that illicit like, oh shit, we're not supposed to see this part where they talk about the movie sucking, um, especially on an official release. Um, there's other real documentaries, but that, that's one that I think of often when I'm thinking of the double fine stuff. I think like humor is always really important. I think about like Spinal Tap and it's like not a real <laughs> documentary, but just to how constantly engaging it is. And, you know, um, people here at Double Fine are funny and I always like to see our stuff be entertaining because it's, it's entertaining to be around these people. So keeping that sort of, um, that, that goofy quality in there or like, um, I'd say like like Grey Gardens and like Gimme Shelter, like the old, like those the grungy old style of like observational documentary where it's just a person with a camera in this like weird space that's capturing these things happening. And you're not you're not a character in the documentary like um, we try not to be. So I like that sense of kind of capturing that that place and time and not really injecting yourself into it as much as you can. And you, you mentioned the the goal, the name and the mission, uh, two player productions sounds an awful lot like the mission from the get go was like, and you've alluded to this already, I think is focusing on games. Like, was that the, the whole goal? Like we are going to start a filmmaking company, but focused on games specifically. I mean, I think it came out of, it was kind of the waning days of G4 TV. Like that was kind of disappearing at that moment. And that was kind of the only thing that really was like, it was sort of, nothing was happening in terms of game content and definitely not serious stuff so yeah i think it was definitely like the serious side where um like i'd I'd mentioned kind of having that chip on my shoulder and like the way that games were sort of viewed as something that um a lot of people would kind of look down on and i was just like i would kind of like to do something that was the anti anti g4 like just applying the sort of style that paul and asif had found doing their film stuff and just boom putting that over onto games and the only time I'd ever really seen anything like that is that I remember they'd done a behind the scenes for Halo 2 that I like randomly saw and really liked. And um, there's some stuff for um, Guitar Hero that Harmonix was doing. And these were just very naturalistic behind the scenes. And they were very people forward and kind of talking about the realities of being in the studios. And I was like, I want to see more of this. It's I want to see more stuff that's humanizing. I want to see more stuff that treats games like any other profession as opposed to sort of putting it through that, um, I don't know, like an MTV filter, you know? Mm -hmm. It's like we have to make it super cool. We have to make it like edgy late 90s (laughs) video game magazine ad. Like we have to like, no, it's like, let's not do that. Let's just let's be cool about it. Let's treat it like a 1970s uh, like film documentary. Like let's get back to a style that's more like that. That's kind of how I feel about this podcast, too. Like. 
it's an opportunity to talk to people who are, I'm not just asking point blank, like these are the questions we're going to hit these mm-hmm. beats and then move on. I'm not focusing on reviewing a game or what did you think about this game or whatever. And it's, again, I don't really care specifically about the games. I care about the experience and what it's brought people and, and, and why behind it. But having those, those actual human conversations, I think is what's most interesting and just having a conversation with somebody who you maybe would never have a conversation with otherwise. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And it's interesting to talk about this stuff. Cause like, I feel like I talk about games, but through the lens of filming them or like making movies about them and not really them so much so it is interesting just to think about this stuff again i feel like i just neglect it all the time now what surprised you uh, about gaming culture and development and games development since you've been doing this whether it's the chiptunes i think you've done some chiptune documentary all the documentaries all the way through the double fine docs well the i think it was well i like the artistry was always really impressive and the knowledge i think that we've been like it's, it's really fun to work with people who are creative and smart and like a lot of people who like that was the chip music scene. Like that's like what was so like fascinating and appealing about it is that like these people were extremely talented. Like these were smart people like making music on an extremely technical platform. And like all music is technical, but like taking the extra steps to learn this really weird style of instrument um, that was very non-traditional and doing incredible things with it, like embracing the limited ability that these pieces of hardware had. And, you know, they'd be, everybody'd be charismatic. They'd be, they'd be funny, they'd be charming, they'd be smart, it'd be interesting to talk to. And it, it sort of ended up being the same thing with games. You know, we would go to game studios and we could sit down with like anybody and just have cool chats with them. And they'd always have something interesting to say. They'd be passionate about their jobs. Um, you know, they would be really into art or technology and then it's just a matter of talking to somebody. And even if they're not, like not everybody's extremely eloquent, but like if you can just get them to talk about the thing that they love and you keep working with them until you find that thing that's like, oh yeah, like I, I'm going to act as if I don't understand any of this. <laughs> and uh, I just need you to tell it to me so that you can get your passion across. But then I also understand like what you're talking about. And that was kind of the thing behind a lot of the the technicality of all this is that we would often sort of push that stuff to the background and really focus on like the passion and the emotion of the people. Yeah, definitely it felt like people had a pent up need or, or desire to talk about all this stuff that they spend all their lives working on, but like there's no outlet. There's no one else really coming and saying like, hey, tell us these things. And it was it was sort of like uh, things opened up when you just like, tell us about this. And they're just like, oh, okay. You want, you want me to hear, talk about that? Okay, cool. So it did feel like people were really excited to talk about it, maybe for the first time. Growing up listening to, well, at least from high school on getting into music uh, big time, I felt like I did have an outlet to understand from the artist's perspective, like what was going through their mind when they wrote this record or the song or whatever. And, and um, you know, looking at liner notes and really getting into the details about who played on these tracks and why, you know, why are they thanking these artists and, you know, for this album and how do those artists connect together? I feel like that level of transparency hasn't ever been there for games. Maybe it has, but the problem is I've never really seen it. I wasn't sure of who was creating these games, right? I would see Nintendo on something or I would see Double Fine on something. Yeah, you kind of want that minutia, right? It yeah. It just allows you to make sense of it all. Yeah, it's it's like with a band, you can look at the band and the band's got like four people or maybe it's one person or, or maybe like a few more, but it's there's enough people there and it's generally like enough interviews are done we're going to be like, yeah, this is why we made the choices that we made at the moment. But when the industry of games never pushed its people uh, to the forefront, like they were always kind of hidden 
and the teams got bigger and bigger and I feel like it made that concept of minutia like harder and harder to nail down because mm -hmm. now you've got like a level lead but then eight level designers underneath of them and like 30 world builders underneath of them and it's just well who's really the one injecting all their stuff into it and everybody's doing something but as the teams grow it kind of gets harder to really pull apart these individual characteristics that like make up the games yeah how is it actually being in that studio let's talk specifically about the double find documentary like you were there for uh what six seven years and you see how all these people are are doing all you know all of these things and connecting things together you're seeing the individual, uh, their identities come through in, in this uh, in this game. Was that eye-opening to you? You want to answer that, Paul? <laughs> you got one? <laughs> well, I mean, if you think about like the Double Fine Adventure, it's like we've been here for like 10 years and we've immediately were so um, involved with the studio. We immediately got to know everybody and like the strangeness of being here shooting all the time went away pretty quickly and it definitely turned into just like it's a it's a job that we're doing that we care about. But it's like we got we show up, we shoot meetings all day. We see people like change and grow. Some leave, new people show up, or they move into different positions. And like these people are kind of like your coworkers. You know, it's we get to know everybody and we get really invested in where they're going and we start to follow their stories. Like if you look at uh, Emily, we see her join Double Fine as like an intern in the broken in uh, the Broken Age doc, and then. You know, she ends up as like a level lead at the end of the Psychonauts 2 documentary. And we have her entire story. You know, we follow her along and we get to see what she does. And it's like that with a lot of people here. So it's like we get to know them, you know, personally as coworkers, but they're also the subject of our thing. So we're, we're trying, to do, trying to do right by them all the time, and just yeah. making sure that we tell their story as best we can. Um, spe Emily specifically was the reason why I found it... Uh very cool to go back and watch the Double Fine Adventure right afterward when you see her hired on as an intern. I was like, ah, that's yeah, there's the origin. That. This is yeah, great. Yeah, yeah. I was like, oh, this is going to be good. Um, it, it gets even weirder because she had been watching the show and that's kind of like what made her want to come to Double Fine. Yeah, hard not to want to work at Double Fine after this, honestly. Yeah. <laughs> to that point, being steeped in Double Fine and watching uh, a game come to, uh, you know, actually be built in front of you. Do you have a different appreciation for games now specifically outside of the people, but the actual like process, the art, the engineering behind it? Have you learned something that, that has shocked you or that you find interesting, more interesting now than ever before? They're impossible. Now I don't ever want to make one after watching them do it. It's mm -hmm. like, yeah, yeah, I think I'm okay now. Since they seem really hard and uh, frustrating. <laughs> I'm not sure why, having seen it, why why people really want to do it that badly. So, yeah, it's, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's you know, like I, I talked about how I sort of grew up like being really interested in behind the scenes stuff on movies, and yeah, I've watched a lot of that stuff um, even before there were like DVDs, like VHS didn't have it. You'd see it on television once in a while. There'd be like shows that be behind the scenes on movies, and I always liked seeing how stuff was made, and um, I think that people still don't really understand is that like all that stuff that goes into making a movie goes into making a game plus like 10,000 more things and people have to be able to touch it and like change it. Like you still need producers. You still need writers. You still need people who know how to operate a camera. Like you still need lighter, like you need all the stuff that makes up a movie, but now they also have to like be really good at math <laughs> and they have to like think about everything from all angles and they have to think about somebody taking that camera and doing whatever they want with it. It's, it's, it's like almost infinitely complex. And um, yeah, it's like staggering to kind of watch things come together. 
and to see the problems that come up and sometimes how simple and stupid they are and how hard they can be to fix. It's just, it's really something else. Yeah. I wonder if there's a level of that. I don't know if it's the negative part of the culture, but like that owner, like an ownership over, like, I understand how this technology works. I understand how game design works. Therefore I can, you know, I can critique it uh, more. I can be more negative, you know, in certain circles around something that's not, you know, not great or, or whatever is if it's your point, I feel like with film, you can imagine yourself holding a camera and we all do now we all have a camera. We can point it at something and shoot it. We all can now see how not great at filmmaking we are when we do that. Um, with a book, you can picture yourself writing. Yes, I can write a sentence. I can write a paragraph. I can kind of build a story. Right. Um, but with games, I don't think we're, we are constantly exercising game design in our daily lives. Right. I think there's a very, there, that's one thing that I don't think I could ever do. And I've never had an itch or a desire to do it as design a game. I, that's a special type of brain that does not, you know, that I can't fathom or, or conceive of, but, um, we don't do that on a day-to-day, day-to-day basis. We're not taught to build games i don't think in 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 school so there's almost like a disconnect i think maybe for mm-hmm. for people and why this just looks like a, a a game or a toy and not necessarily an art form um or an experience that's being designed um or a, a practice of design in general also the point of technology there are a lot of people that to this day don't under, really understand how computers work or how the phone in their pocket works um you know that may not even know how to open up programs or struggle with email. And I'm not saying that's a fault of theirs, but I think there are plenty of people who don't get it, grasp it as quickly as others. And therefore the concept of building things in that, with those tools in that medium is foreign. And therefore it's not something they, you know, think of as, as involved as it actually is and more, maybe more involved than film and, and other things. Well, you, you can sort of turn this whole thing into a discussion about the evils of uh, capitalism left unchecked, right? Because, it's kind of, I, I, I'm not the type of person who's going to go off on like that sort of thing, but it is all kind of built into the system in the sense that like, it's kind of better that you don't really understand how your phone works. Because if you did, maybe you wouldn't be as inclined to buy a new one every single year. Cause like, you'd know how hard it was to make, like how valuable all the materials inside of it are, like how thousands of people like engineered it, like down to like microscopic levels of precision. And you, you need to appreciate it, but you're also taught that it's disposable. And I think that these things are kind of at odds with one another. So mm-hmm. the more that we know about stuff, the more that we appreciate it. And the more we appreciate it, the less likely we are to dispose of it in a way. So I think the sort of keeping people ignorant about a lot of this stuff is in the best interest of a lot of the big companies. They're not I mean, that's the thing that we face with games. Like nobody would let us make these documentaries anywhere, like period. Like we, we, you know, we started trying and we kind of got like, (laughs) (laughs) kind of got stopped, you know? And, um, but we found like a safe haven with Double Fine and Tim was like, yeah, let's just do it. Like it's his personal mission. So we're here to do exactly that. It was like, try to teach consumers about the stuff that goes into the things that they interact with and that hey, um, maybe there's a bit more to this game that you got like on a Steam sale for five bucks. Like there's some blood, sweat and tears in here. 
there are parts like I, there are, there's a part of me that doesn't like seeing as much as I do, uh, that's exposed in the double fine documentary because I still want some of that imagination. I don't want necessarily want to know how the sausage is made because I just want to experience the magic of it. Too um, late. To, I, it is. I know. Now I know too much. I'm never going to play a game again. There's other games you can play. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but there, there is something to be said of like when I experience something there, I have a resistance of doing new, new things sometimes. And I am a person who likes to know a little about a lot. Um, so I will experience a lot of different things, but I also always have this, like this, there's something holding me back from trying to experiencing it because I don't necessarily want to know. I don't want to break that magic. I don't want to break it down. Um, I, maybe one example is I mod Game Boys on the side and Ooh. I had, it was like the, um, the very first Game Boy I opened, it wasn't functioning and I wanted to see if I could fix it. So I opened it up and as soon as I did and saw the pieces inside, I, it was almost like something in me, hmm. not died, but went away. It was like this weird, like I, I broke that seal, I broke the magic and now it's just these parts. Um, I still appreciate Game Boys and Game Boy games and maybe on a whole different level now, but something about, uh, about my um, enthusiasm or that, like I said, that magic just sort of disappeared as soon as I got a peek inside. Like I was touching something I shouldn't be touching or looking at something I shouldn't be looking at. Um, and I feel like that's with games because there's so many moving parts and, and, and there's so much technology involved that when you actually see how it's done, it can actually, you start looking at games a little differently when you play them. I'm almost the, like kind of the exact opposite of that in Whoa. the sense that like, cause, cause it was, it goes back to like learning about movies and stuff and just being like, I know that's a special effect. I know how they did that special effect. And I can kind of hold that in my brain and flip it off and back on again. Like, and just be like, I'm purely appreciating this as an effect it was having on me. Like um, just the other night I was watching the 4K restoration of the original Star Trek movie. And it's visual effects shots in that are just like blowing my mind. It looks amazing, it's so beautiful. And I'm like, these are all like airbrush paintings that they're like, like multi-masking and there's like hundreds and thousands of them. It's like. But like at the same time, I'm like holding in my mind the emotional experience of like seeing it as a film. And I do the same thing with games. Like I'll have that intended experience with the game, but also be like, oh, I see what they did there. Like, that's cool. And it, it can just kind of like turn on and off at any time. So I, I like having that knowledge. Like it, I feel like it hasn't ruined anything for me yet. Speaking of the extent of the documentary, it's quite a lot of footage, like day in, day out recording. I don't know if it's you guys are doing this five days a week, but I imagine regardless, the amount of footage you are recording, the the content you're editing, the amount of time spent doing this, I relate to that and thinking I don't have a whole lot of time myself these days to enjoy games and hence the podcast of like, I still consume games through other mediums, uh, you know, media, the documentary. Um, I still am totally absorbed in that world, although I may not be playing them. I'm curious what your relationship is with games right now after covering it, you know, all seemingly all day, every day and editing the content over this course, this course of years. Like, are you, are you sick playing games shit. at all on the side? Are you sick shit? of it? Are you, nah, yeah, exactly. Are you tired <laughs> of it? What, what is your relationship with games right now? No, no, I think, I think Levering, I, I allow, I let him play all the games cause I know he will and, and he'll, you know, give us a full report and everything. But I, I do feel like over the last couple of years, like when the documentary started really heating up that I really haven't had time to like, really like sink my teeth into any like games, like I'll try to start one and then lose time and can't go back to it and then have to start over it's just i'm kind of in your boat but what what do you what do you got Bo? 
Uh, I, I mean, I feel like I play games less now and um, for, for like a while, like less than I have in my entire life. Like, and that's not necessarily, maybe it's like hard to explain why that is, but um, like now I mostly find myself, I buy tons of games. Like I, I buy so many games. <laughs> I just buy them all the time. Like I'm yeah. always looking at Steam sales and I'm just like, I want to get this, I'm going to get this, I'm going to get this. Some obsession. I'm going to play this for five minutes. <laughs> I'm going to play this for 10 minutes. And like in the back of my mind, I'm like, I'll have time to play all these one day. <laughs> <laughs> like, I'm going to retire and I'll just like play games all the time. But I, I like experiencing stuff, even if it's just for a little bit. I like uh, supporting creators that I, you know, care about and just kind of getting a flavor, seeing the art, like seeing how it feels and like jumping around. So like I, I got like a Steam Deck as soon as that came out. And um, now like most of my gaming is like... Um, like 15 or 20 minutes before I go to bed, like every day. Oof. But like, I'm really, uh, really excited about it when it happens. <laughs> yeah, I just yeah. got Breath of the Wild, uh, not Breath of the Wild, Jeez, uh, Tears of the Kingdom <laughs> over the weekend. So I'm hoping that'll be like my foray into like, okay, I'm gonna get back into games and like really do it upright this time. And uh, yeah, I don't know why it's so hard, I, yeah, to find the time now. It's also rare that something like really um, grabs me. Like I'm having all these different experiences, but um, maybe it's, from having too much choice, but it's like the last thing I played a lot was like Elden Ring. And um, me and my wife played that together. And that was like something that she liked too. So we could, you know, talk about it and um, make time for it, like in our schedules. Aside from that, like maybe I played through like Assassin's Creed Odyssey. And after that, we went on a vacation to Greece, you know, like, <laughs> but like sometimes like stuff will make a big impact and we'll get time to play it for like the 80 to 100 hours that most games are, you know. Right nowadays, but for the most part, I'm just like just tasting things, just like constantly at the buffet, just trying a little bit of everything. Yeah, I, I empathize with that 100. I I think part of it too is we it's with games specifically, it's a, there's a realization of how much free time we had as kids. Maybe yeah. um, mm-hmm. I heard on maybe it was on some podcast I was listening to the other day. They were talking about turn-based games, which I loved growing up. I loved playing Final Fantasy when I grew up. Playing a turn-based game now is very challenging. I realize how long it actually takes to get through a battle or something like that. And I just don't, as much as I love and love, you know, those style, that style of games, I just don't have the time for it. I'll do like one battle and be like, oh my God, like that was a half hour and that was it. <laughs> That's all I've got. That's the, between family and work and everything else, uh, chores around the house. Even on those free days where like, oh, I'm going to retire and be able to play games. Like I realize on the days that I have off, I fill up my day with just doing chores around the house. It's just that, you know, responsibility uh, is is so stark and apparent when I think through the lens of, of games and finding time to actually engage and play with games. Yeah. That's why I often will play, just replay old games or like games where I know exactly what to do. And I think it's part, partly like just a comfort thing, just like I need to play a game, but like I don't want to think too hard about like getting into a new one. And it's just like, I'll just replay this old one and it'll be great. What What were, for both of you, what were your first experiences with games or the ones that you remember what are your first memories with video games uh i can remember i mean we had a my dad had a 2600 i know that and i remember playing some arcade games here and there but nothing that really like grabbed me in the from those early games you know um like they always seemed way too hard or like a little janky or they just weren't weren't quite there for at least for a little kid anyway to really grasp and um but i do remember going over it was like christmas 88 going over my aunts and her she had just gotten her kids my cousins uh super mario 
and an NES, and that was the first time I ever saw one in person. And I just remember my older brother like not being able to stop playing. Like mom, my mom was like, "We're leaving now," and like he was like, "Yeah, yeah, I'd be right there." And he like we we got in the car and he was like, "Is he coming or what?" And we just left him there because he just couldn't stop playing. <laughs> and I was like, "Oh my god!" Like. I was like in love with this thing. Just, I couldn't believe what it was. I was just like, oh my God, this thing's fucking crazy. And then I just remember, I do have a memory of finding a box of games of my cousins, different cousins, and just seeing that the gold Zelda card, um, this is probably oh, yeah. 88, 87 or something. Mm -hmm. And just seeing that, I was like, and I was like, this is special, something special about this one. Uh, and I was right. But um, those are the early, the early ones. Yeah, I think it's Mario 1 and Zelda were the two that were like still formative. Yeah. Yeah, it's shockingly similar story for well, maybe not that shockingly <laughs> but like my parents had games like we had like the 2600 we might have had like a ColecoVision or something like around the house but um I actually didn't like them all that much and um I wanted to and like I knew I knew that I wanted to be playing the thing on the tv but like trying to play like the spider-man game or well, it's, it's they're just like so many of those games just did not work for me they were frustrating they were like kind of boring um they didn't feel good and we didn't have like a lot of arcades around my like hometown, but like my parents would tell me about how they had me as a baby down at the boardwalk in uh, New Jersey. And there was an arcade there. And like my dad was playing Sinistar and I was in like one of those baby backpacks. And I was like, like craning like my head like around to try to see like what was going on. Cause I could hear the, uh, like the run coward, like yeah, the machine, cool. machine cool. screaming. Good vibe. I am Sinistar. Run, coward. I knew that arcades had like better experiences. And I feel like when the Nintendo, like I got that for Christmas, the uh, set with the, um, the light gun and the, um, the track and field pad, the triple, triple set. Oh, yeah. And, <laughs> and just what like, yeah, it just felt like everything opened up. Like this was the experience I had want, I'd been wanting to have, like now made real. All the barriers were broken down. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I definitely wanted to like those Atari games. I was like, damn, these these are cool. But like, like I remember playing the Empire Strikes Back mm -hmm. on 2600 and just like, just so frustrating because it didn't seem to have an end. It seemed way too hard, like stuff like that, where it's just like, this is just really frustrating in the end. Like, I want to love this, but I can't. The boxes were so beautiful. All the art was, like, was incredible. It's like the best box art. And you're like, oh man, I'm like, I, I am pure imagination at this age. Like, yeah. but even it still can't do it for me, you know? Yeah. I feel bad because Tim is always like, ah, oh, yeah, all these naming all these old arcade games that he loves and that got him into it and stuff. And it's just like, ah, no, I didn't like that. Didn't like that really. So I feel bad stepping on his childhood. And I'm sure people look at the NES as some archaic thing now as well. But for me, it's good. Yeah. Shit. What, um, as we we're talking about not having time for new stuff when you do game, what are the games you're going back to? Oh, I mean, I'll always go back to the first Zelda. I feel like I do that every couple of years just because it it is the uh, I get yeah you know, like the genesis for just loving games just something about that world is is still uh, really great to me and uh, that's one um, and then jump maybe like Metal Gear Solid was another big one that we'll put on like any like Ocarina of Time I don't know I could go on and on but you know kind of like I feel like after the N sixty four I have less sort of like warm nostalgic feelings like it was more like I went away to like college like when the, the same year the GameCube came out and it was sort of like the end of the innocence there and it just sort of it uh took on a different meaning I feel like and that was kind of the start of not having enough time it seemed like I only had like a couple GameCube games and it wasn't my obsession anymore it was just 
another another thing I did. But mm-hmm. yeah, those first like NES, NES, N64, PlayStation One. That's kind of like the stuff I love to return to and feel like a kid again. Yeah, Levering. What about you? I was gonna say that like I got into emulation like as soon as I could, and I was always like going back to old games, even stuff that I didn't have. Like I had a lot of original hardware, but like emulation opened the doors and so much stuff I'd never gotten to try before, or at least made it readily available at most times. Like I could run emulation on like my PSP and still have like Nintendo games on the go or stuff like that. But like say like during um, COVID, like one of the hobbies I got into was like ROM hacks and really exploring those, but not in the traditional sense where it's like kind of a goofy nonsense, but like I really got into ROM ROM hacks that were specifically improving certain aspects of old games to Mm -hmm. just make them a little more user-friendly. And when Paul mentions like Zelda, like I found like a like a Zelda um, improvement ROM hack that just like made the game so much more fun for me to play now because like I could move through it faster and it's not like I have to burn a tree and step off the screen and come back and burn like another tree and do that like a thousand times because like I, I still didn't remember where everything was but they had changed it just enough so it's like oh now, now there's a slight crack in the wall now that tree is slightly different and some people would say that that eliminates like the point of the exploration of Zelda. But I, I think when you're a kid and you have all that spare time, it's fine. But for me, I don't have all that spare time. And a lot of that stuff that is kind of like exploration in air quotes also can kind of come off as just like tedious. So I, I think it's interesting to kind of like tweak some of these older games and just make them a little more fair, a little more playable. I really got into that. So I was like Zelda 1, Zelda 2 some excellent ones for like Mega Man, Castlevania. I can still pick up and play Castlevania like at any time. And I think that's like one of the great masterpieces of game design. And that's, you know, not a radical opinion since all anyone ever seems to do is make YouTube videos about Castlevania now. <laughs> Just video essays for Paul to watch. Yeah, Seven hours of talking about <laughs> Castlevania, sign me up. So something that I like, I love to do now, like, and it started with listening to podcasts and it's something I never thought that I would do, but I haven't gotten into streamers. Um, I still, I feel like if you have the time to watch a stream, then you have time to like play a game. So, (laughs) but like, I do really love like video essays on YouTube Mm -hmm. and I'll watch like video essays about games as I'm doing the dishes, as I'm cooking dinner. Like that's something that I can like, you know, put on and it's not somebody actively playing something. It's somebody like really discussing it, like talking about the history of it, giving their feelings on it. And that feels like, you know, I, I can like half pay attention to this and get it. Like I can be tuned in and it's not like I'm just watching somebody play a game. Like I, I'd rather just do that myself. It's, it's almost like a self-analysis to be like, why do I like these things now looking back? It's like, I don't really have time to play them, but I can at least figure out what it is about them that really hits me, you know? And for you, it surrounds your, I mean, it surrounds a big chunk of your life. You're dedicating your professional life to it, not through creating games or playing games, but documenting the process, you know, it's, it's part of you at this point. Like, why, why, why is that? Why are we, why are we the way we are? I need a video essay to explain that to me. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Like an essay is, is criticism and it's like an, an intelligent opinion. It's like, you're actually trying to say why you like the thing and maybe not all video essays actually even get to it. And it usually does kind of come down to like, it makes me feel this. It makes me feel that uh, if it, it feels fun to play, but like, what does that even mean? What does it mean that it feels fun to play something like there's elements of challenge, but also just what is sparking your creativity? What is like sort of lighting up a part of your brain that makes you think and feel 
And um, I think that's what it was for me with a lot of these things is it just sort of lit up my imagination. And um, even as games like grew in complexity, you could almost say that they're stripping away imagination because with the ability to kind of render everything up on the screen, you're left, you, you don't get to inject yourself into it quite as much. But I think that people still find a way, you know, people still have find a way to have really deep, meaningful experiences with games. And just like that act of criticism, we should expect games to be able to hold up to that. We should be able to talk about them in that way and ask that of them. Because if, if we can't do that with games and games can never really be like the art form that we want them to be, art has to be able to hold up to some sort of exploration and criticism. Do you think the criticism, I'm, uh, and this also comes up on the podcast quite a lot because I bring it up a lot, but like the being able to interact with these things, you mentioned, you know, I'm having fun with this, but well, what does that even mean? Why is this fun? How is that actually happening? And the criticism of like the interaction, do you think that is maybe what's more interesting or special about the type of criticism of video games? I think that like, there's well, there's also like just, just so people are clear that like, I don't think the criticism is like bad. Criticism is just kind of like, talking about your perspective and your experience with something and like what that thing means to you. And it can be extremely positive or it can be negative. Everybody brings a different thing like to the table. And um, I just think it's like, it's different for everybody with games, but oftentimes people don't think enough about it themselves perhaps, and maybe just listen too much to another critic and just accept their views. This happens with everything else too. It's not just specific to games, you know? A movie gets one bad review and then a million people line up to say that like, yeah, it looks stupid. It's like, well, did you watch it though? <laughs> Maybe you shouldn't just take this one person's word. I think that's appropriate. And yeah, the term criticism, I, I don't ever, at this point, I, I don't ever take it as a, a negative, like with a negative connotation. I think it means just a, a thoughtful, you know, thoughtful take on whatever it is you're, you're looking at. The, the question of why we care about games, I think fascinates me because again, we have limited time. We've touched on that momentarily yet we still continue to think about these things we play old games whether it's a modded version or the way we remembered as a child you watch video essays we listen to podcasts about the content uh, you make documentaries about it what is it about games that you know fascinates you and maybe it's uh, you know maybe it's the same for both of you maybe it's different but what do you over your years of uh experiencing this medium and the growth of it uh the the you know watching it as a medium and as an art form grow and develop, uh, or what is it about it that intrigues you? I think that there's like um, a low level answer that applies to everybody. That's kind of like the sad thing that we probably don't really want to embrace is that it is like stimulating our lizard brains, like, like gambling would, right? Like that is like the lowest level effect that it's causing our brains to light up in a way that's almost like a drug or just an extremely fulfilling thing that happens. And that, that, that's like the very, very, very deep baseline interaction is that it's very easy to get that like dopamine hit from like playing a game. And I always kind of think about that in the background, like whenever I'm having an experience with a game, it's just like, how much is this just like baseline lighting up my brain and how is that coloring the way that I think and feel about everything else in it? But the more like inspiring and powerful thing is to think about like, how, how do I feel about this environment? How does this stimulate my imagination? What kind of stories do I create inside my head? And like, as a little kid with like a vivid imagination, I would love to sort of come up with like side stories or flesh out the lore. Like I, I like, I wanted to make the movies for like Castlevania and Legend of Zelda and Mega Man, like back when I was a little kid. And I still have those ideas in my head now. 
and I, I say I, there's still time, man. Come on. There's still time, but big like opportunity I, in Hollywood now. I think that I could have done it, maybe a better Mario movie, but we don't need to get into that. The, um, <laughs> yeah, like a, a lot of it is like, I think for me, it's like imagination. And, um, I was reading comic books. I was reading books, but there's something unique about the combination of like brain chemistry that's happening when you're playing a game because touching it, you're controlling it. And especially back then, there was a lot of space to sort of come up with your own stuff to fill in the gaps. Um, it was almost like this perfect vessel for inspiration in some ways. And um, you know, nowadays, all the lore is already there. So if you're doing something creative with it, the likelihood is that you're actually changing the lore or adding on to the lore that already exists, which is different, but you know, it can still be fulfilling for people. Yeah, I think um, kind of the thing that comes to my mind, like it kind of has the same feel of when I'm reading like a really good book and I can't put it down, like that um, feeling that you're like, just want to be in that world all the time or you just need to be there. Like um, some games, like I can remember playing Mario 64 the first time and being like, oh, this is good. Yeah, I'm into this. And then, but like the next morning at school, I was like thinking about it, like, oh man, I really want to go back and just like run around in those grassy fields or just be in, in that game world. And yeah, I think for me, that's 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 important. It's just that space that uh, you can be in, yeah. And the times when you can't, maybe this actually goes back to the documentary a bit, but even when you can't, you're still seemingly immersing yourself in in the industry and in the culture of it. Why is that? Good question, because a lot of it's kind of annoying, right? Like the culture of it, so I don't know. What's annoying um, about it? I don't know. I'll <laughs> put you on the spot. Yeah, we've talked so much shit on this podcast. I mean, this would be positive, you know? <laughs> so so we, uh, you know, we, we, released, we released the site, Psych Odyssey, we um, put it out and we like follow all the discussions and stuff that happens because we just need that positive reinforcement that our work <laughs> is, it matters. So we're always like reading everything and we track like double fine on Twitter and we still see like people just like fight about Microsoft and Sony. They fight all day long and it's it just like takes you all the way back to like the schoolyard where it was like Nintendo oh, yeah. versus Sega. And I'm like, man, why are you people still fighting about this stuff? Like, who cares? You're it's fighting weird. Yeah fighting about the wrong things like microsoft is not ruining all these game studios like everything is cool like we're doing great everybody's pretty happy there's like different things to be upset about and but people are so like worked up over brands and that's kind of the the level of engagement i wish that people weren't so hung up on when it comes to to games it feels like that's not really creativity that's just like brand loyalty and um if you want to get like i, I wish that more people got really deeply invested into games helping them be creative or like, you know, think about stories. It's like we see cool stuff like like fan art or fan writing or people making fan games. Like that's that's taking these inspirations and turning them into something that's I'm trying to speak art with my own language. Like I saw this and I'm trying to turn it into my own thing. But with a lot of consumers, the industry is, you know, pretty responsible for just kind of training them to be like brand loyalists. And they never really seem to be able to get past that. Well, it's not productive at some level. It's not productive at all, really. And, yeah. you know, on the flip side, what you described with folks creating art or creating, you know, um, fan games or whatever it happens to be, like, that is productive. Um, it's productive for that individual. It's productive for the community, I feel like. there. Truthfully, I know it was sort of in jest, but truthfully, there is a lot of the, you know, about game culture that is annoying that I think I like to mm -hmm. see folks push back on. And again, very positive, you know, a lot of positivity and, and you know, things like the documentaries that y'all produce push back on that, the, the annoying parts, I think, of the culture and show that there is more here than just that. Well, we had like a real, 
I, you know, I think it kind of comes back to that like toy discussion where, you know, games blew up in the 70s and it was a family thing. You know, it was a thing that the whole family would play together, mom, dad, kids. And after that market crashed, like video game was kind of a dirty word. So they came back as toys and then it was just toys marketed to children. And um, people were still making like interesting experiences. There were still like adults and young adults making these games that have artistic value, but they were just being sold as toys. And um, I think that like the marketing, the attitude, the, the level of control that you can have like over children by like, you know, <laughs> brainwashing them with advertisements and all the Nintendo powers I would get in the mail and read from like cover to cover, just turning me into a brand loyalist. Mm -hmm. It was just that level of um, control like never changed. Like the industry never sort of grew out of that pattern after they found success doing that. Mm -hmm. So games continued to kind of be marketed as toys and treated as toys, advertised essentially as toys. And then as soon as um, once like violence was like really strongly injected, like the edge, that became the other major marketing thing where it's like, oh, we used to be toys, but now we're super violent, but still toys. It, I don't know, you look back at all those old ads and they're just like really embarrassing because they're leaning so hard into how edgy everything is. And um, it just all rings like so false. Mm -hmm. And uh, that was like, you know, the thing that we kind of want to try to push back against or move away from because it's um, it's easy. The negativity, the sensationalism, like these are the easy things to do. And that's kind of why people keep doing them. I don't want to like name names, but just like people who are making media that got to be like really big on YouTube who are really just drilling down on like making fun of stuff, like just constantly goofing on it. And um, there's an entire generation of gamers who are raised on that and think that that's like a great way to talk about stuff is just to make fun of it. And making fun of stuff is like really easy. Um, I think that it's, you know, you can, it's hard to be funny, but to make fun of something is pretty easy. And um, it's taken stuff like um, Games Done Quick is like super positive. And like, I really, really love and appreciate that because it's a really strong community with a really loud voice. And they're all like extremely positive, even when it comes to playing games that are considered to be like, bad there's still like a lot of like joy and appreciation for the medium so it's like we are seeing these cultural shifts and even like the video essays that i talk about they are largely trending to be more positive so i think that we're starting to see in like the last you know five ten years there is an effort being made within the community itself to sort of push back against how gross things got and change the way that we talk about these things yeah i'll, de I'll definitely harbor bad feelings towards anyone that said castlevania 2 was bad back on the internet to where I was like, what? Come on, that's great. What are you talking about? Um, and now some, there's a ton of people out there just sort of like, yeah, doesn't that game suck? I never played it, but it's terrible, right? <laughs> like that's sort of the attitude where it's like, yeah, I heard that was really bad, right? It's just like, no, it was great in 1987. Come on, you weren't there. I mean, that specifically speaks to the way some, I mean, the, some of my favorite films, I tell people it's my favorite film. They're like, are you kidding me? Like, <laughs> what? Maybe they've never seen it or they've just seen terrible reviews, but for whatever reason, yeah. it's like my favorite film, right? What's your favorite film? I mean, what came to mind, I don't know if it's my favorite film right now. Um, I should reevaluate that list. Uh, but like things, um, High Fidelity, I think is up there as a, mm. is a pretty decent mm. film. I'm not going to include that, but like mm. Vanilla Sky was one that mm -hmm. I, I watched over and over and over and over. I was obsessed with it. I still enjoy it uh, for what it is. And, a lot of people think I'm crazy because it's good. Some great scenes. Yeah, great scenes, great soundtrack. The original Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles movie is Ooh. maybe my mm. favorite movie of all time. It's mm. not movies, fuck games. Yeah, keep going. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's great. Yeah, <laughs> I actually had one. a question on here. What are your favorite films? But uh, but anyway, yeah. So, I mean, the same same is true for games, right? Like, 
I think games certainly can catch you at a, at a moment, like any piece of media can catch you at a moment. And it means something to you. That's going to mean something very different to somebody else. And maybe it is a trash game or a trash movie or a trash book, but it caught you at a moment that you needed it. And that's, you know, you're getting something else out of it, which is again, how do you evaluate art? How do you actually critique art? Because there is so much, how do you be objective about critiquing art? I think is maybe the biggest challenge there, right? You, you sort of can't at some level, can't remove your human from it. Well, we're, we're always changing as humans too. And that changes yeah. the way that we interact with things and um, stuff that you thought was good or bad 10, 20 years ago, you could feel totally different about now. And I really, I, I love rewatching like movies, especially if it's something I haven't seen in a while. And like, like me and my wife are like working through some like 90s stuff. Cause it's kind of like um, something we don't go back to. It's like you go back to the eighties cause that's your comfort zone or you watch stuff that's like a little more recent or you dig even deeper and go further. So we end up missing over like 90s stuff and we're just thinking about like we just watched like blade one and blade two back to back and i was like damn blade one is like so good i liked it back then but like now i think it's even better but then we watched blade two and i was like i don't like this anymore like i liked it back then yeah i liked it more than the first one but now it's like uh this is like post matrix and it feels like oh you can feel it and it's like the first one was like really steeped in like the 70s and black exploitation and it had this really authentic vibe. And then the, the second one, I was like, oh, man, I'm so weird. I don't really like this movie now. And um, I never thought I would say that about like a like Glermo film. It's like yeah, don't you love Del Toro, don't you? Yeah. So weird, weird. <laughs> but we just change. You know, we change as people. Our perspectives change. The things that we um, care about change. Going back to those early days and games as kids, when we talk about our passion and enthusiasm for games now, do you all feel like an anxiety when you mention how much you care about games or what you even do for a living. There are a lot of us in that generation or in this generation where it's like video games were, I think, still a, a, a niche, you know, medium, uh, art, whatever you want to call it. There was an element of like, can I talk about this around certain people at school or are they going to think I'm weird and nerdy or is oh, it yeah. totally open? You know, you're having enough schoolyard conversations with friends and stuff that it's really engaging and fun, but you're still like, for me, it was like, uh, walking on eggshells a little bit about who can I actually like yeah. talk to about this and really get deep into it. Right? Yeah, it's hard in high school to be like, let's talk about Mario 64, you guys. And, uh, yeah. you know, that's <laughs> tough. That's really tough. You know, I've always really kind of thought about how this has been like a chip on my shoulder, even kind of like growing up. I didn't have like a ton of friends. I was kind of isolated. So I, I definitely spent a lot of time playing games and I took games like very seriously, or at least I felt that they were important. And um, I kind of grew up surrounded by uh, like a lot of art, like not just like comic books, but like like fantasy art, historical art. Like my parents were really interested in mythology and just like all all those different styles of storytelling. Tons of movies, tons and tons and tons of movies. And like games were just introduced like very naturally. And to me, it kind of felt like games fit alongside of all that other stuff, like to me as like a child. But I definitely got the sense that other Older people or even other kids looked at games as just being toys. And um, I was like, I'm having experiences with these things. Like I, I play these games, I go to places, they make me think and feel things. So to me, it was kind of the same thing as like having a big book of like, like art that was like, like dragons or incredible paintings of landscapes and things. Like it was all stimulating my imagination and taking me places. Yeah. So I would tell my you know, my parents, it's like, oh, I, want to, I want to make games when I get older or like, I want to work on games and it'd be kind of like, well, okay. That's kind of like, like toys that people don't take very seriously, but okay. And, um, felt that way about games just growing up. And I still do now, 
that for a large part, they're still kind of seen as toys. And I really wish that they could be taken in more seriously. But that's um, a long conversation to have. And it's not just society, but also the industry itself that proliferates uh, these feelings. I was, uh, I was just like at a wedding a little while ago for like, you know, friend and um, meeting like parents or anybody and having to explain what I do professionally is such, it's a pain in the ass. It's horrible. Cause like, oh, um, I work on videos, but I work at a game studio, but I'm also like documenting the game studio for like a documentary. And um, I make trailers and stuff for them sometimes. It's just like, I, like I've kind of gotten, it's like, oh, I work at Microsoft. Mm. You know, because it's like even working at a game studio, people immediately just like uh, you, you see the look on their face kind of change. It's, it's like, <laughs> yeah, I, and I don't know what really they think it means. I think that they assume it's kind of like that factory in the Ninja Turtles movie where like everybody is on skateboards and like smoking and like playing arcade games, which is a pretty dope like. That's sweet, yeah. Yeah, yeah that MC reality. Hammer, yes, I would like to work in an office like that. I think that might yeah. be pretty cool. Yeah, have to. I, I think that that's maybe what the perception is that I just like screw around all day, like making toys. The only time that people are ever kind of like, "Oh, cool," is like if they actually play games, and even then, the perception of what it is that you do is still extremely difficult to explain because nobody really knows how games work. Even in a lot of ways, people who make games. Yeah. It's, and, it's, and Double Fine is kind of niche within this larger niche as well, where it's like, even people who play games are just like, Double Fine? What, what are they doing? Psychonauts? It's like, uh, oh, what is that one? Like, maybe. Like, they, they're pretty obscure even to mainstream gamers, it feels like, often. So, yeah. as I've seen from people's blank expressions when I bring it up, they're just like, uh, huh? But mm -hmm. uh, even like my mom, like for the past like 50, 20 years, 15 years, I've been trying to explain what it is I do day to day. But then she actually did watch a couple episodes of The Psychodicy and was like, oh my God, they're so creative over there. These people, well, how do they do it? And she got into it for a little while, you know, she couldn't. <laughs> but, uh, you know, it took took a long time for her to understand even like what the hell I did. I think going back to talking about, again, kids, the way games were marketed when we were younger, uh, we were the core audience specifically um, being, you know, males, like we were the, little boys were specifically the, the core audience or, or marketed, uh, we were marketed to more heavily than anybody else, I think. And games, I think for the larger population, um, that's still what it is today because of those, you know, I don't know if it's because of that early marketing, because truthfully at, they were toys in their infancy. Um, I don't want to say that they were much greater than that. We have seen them change. I think we, we've, we saw inklings of, uh, these being more than just Pong or or Pac-Man or even Mario, like you start seeing narratives start coming along and the imagination in Zelda and whatnot. But, uh, you know, folks who are passionate about the medium are still sort of feels like we're digging ourselves out of a little bit of that hole from back then, right? To show people and to kind of express to people like this is more than just playing a game, playing, you know, shoots and ladders or Monopoly. <laughs> it's there's something more to that. And I'm not just like wasting my time staring at the screen. Yes, it is probably tapping into that lizard brain part of me that's, that's the way it gets your its hooks in you this way anything gets its hooks in you really is like the sort of dopamine hit um mm -hmm. and you want to keep going back after it but i think there's when i say we it's folks who are trying to put in that sort of like that the positivity around games and kind of express to people why these things are important and why it's becoming such a why it has become such a huge industry and a huge part of our culture 
you know, I don't know really where I'm going with this with the question. I just feel like it's that, yeah, I guess that we're trying to dig ourselves out of a hole, a weird hole. I don't know if you guys feel that same way. Yeah. I mean, it's just a lot of um, cultural damage that's been done that isn't, um, there's not enough happening to write it, you know? Right. Um, it tends to be that everything flows towards the sensationalism of games, the power fantasy, the escapism. Like even when we see games like represented in media and like a big movie, like Free Guy or something, it's like they're running around shooting up the city, blowing everything up. It's like Grand Theft Auto. The Mario movie is presented as like a barely there skeletal narrative and it serves just for like some action sequences that are just moments from the games again. There's really no great complexity. I would even kind of say that like something like The Last of Us being like a hit TV show is good, but it's still more that sort of like extreme drama that's, to me, like personally, it feels kind of like old or also just like edgy that look at how violent we can be. Look how sad we can be. Only in video games can you be this like sad and violent. And it's like, well, I mean, like, you know, Cormac McCarthy might have some things to say about that, but like just, it, it feels like it's always heading in like one direction and it's never really um, the way the industry, what it really needs is to be more like multifaceted, to just have more space for things to exist. Um, like Minecraft was probably good, you know, overall in terms of like creating this creativity sandbox, but it kind of felt like with time, hasn't Minecraft gotten like more and more like oddly specific, you know? Mm -hmm. As opposed to just being like the big digital box of building the building blocks. It's look at all these games that we can play inside of Minecraft now with this latest update. And um, I don't know. Yeah, I suppose I also I'm, I'm like losing the uh, losing the thread. But I just kind of wish that um, games are everything. They can be everything. But the way that they're treated by the industry itself and like the media and the way that most people interact with them is very specific. Yeah, that secrecy doesn't help as well. Because when you're talking about like Oscar for best movie, people can be like, oh yeah, because the acting was so good in that one or the shots look so great. But like when the, it's like the game awards and it's like, oh, here's the best game. It's like, okay, I guess, yeah. I don't know why, but I guess it was, yeah. Is there anything that excites you about the future of games going forward? Again, a question that I think is very particular for folks of our generation who have seen the medium you know, from its infancy and where it's going. Uh, you go first, Paul. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I like VR a lot. That's, again, that was like, um, just when I first put on like a VR helmet that actually worked, it just clicked inside my brain. I was like, I've been waiting my whole life for this. Cool. Um, I just hope that it doesn't like die due to it being like overhyped because there's so much potential there. It's really cool. I feel like people keep trying to steer it in the wrong direction and uh, doing damage to the movement in its own way. But also kind of like the ability to look back. Like I was, I was like so excited to get the Steam Deck and to have like machines that are so powerful they can just emulate more stuff so that more stuff continues to be available all the time. And like whenever I miss out on something, I was like, ah, you know, 15 years from now, I'll be able to emulate that. It's cool. You know, don't need to worry about it. Because the idea of like preservation and stuff is extremely important. You know, film, like a lot of films got lost to time just because they rotted or got burnt up in you know, warehouse fires. And games, games can disappear too. So just the idea of keeping stuff around, keeping it accessible. Um, I really hope that as you know, technology and things like emulation continue to improve, we just manage to keep this stuff around so that people can maintain perspective on how 
things used to be, have that stuff there as a resource to learn from. And that when you finally retire and have an opportunity to play games, <laughs> yeah. you have a back catalog that exactly. you can go to. I'm exactly. waiting for that retirement. Yeah, yeah. that's right. That's yeah. right. I mean, counting, counting the days. <laughs> I mean, I think simplicity would be a great thing to get back to because stuff is just so complicated these days. And I think back to this stuff that somehow my dad got into, like Tetris on the Game Boy, like he loved Wii Sports, like he somehow got really really into that like these really really simple experiences that are really great too but like i i I just find like even setting up a game consoles like takes like my full concentration where it's just like okay what do i have to do here and i gotta oh the tv's doing this and it's just like for me someone who's like around technology all the time it's even a little bit of a challenge but like for my mom would never be able to figure that shit out she'd be like i don't know it's a black screen i don't know you know it's just gotten so complex and now it's not really old jesus christ okay I, I, I spent an hour today trying to get our office PS5 to work with the projector that we just put in. Okay. So it's like all that stuff is, yeah, it's staggering to me that it's still so hard to make these things talk to each other. It's a huge it's, barrier. I mean, that just comes back to like the competition and the competitive nature of it all where it's like everyone's got a different device, a different console, different stuff, and people are arguing about it. Uh, well, if you're looking for simplicity, Paul, you're gonna love to, you're gonna love Tears of the Kingdom. I'm gonna tell you that. It's, it's so funny you bring that up. I was I came across some article yesterday that was like um, the best controller to buy to play Tears of the Kingdom. Jesus I'm like, Christ. wait, what? You have so I've got my Switch. Are you saying I can't do it on that? And as I read through it, I'm like, oh yeah, I get what they're saying. Like the way the button layout you know is set up on the Switch doesn't really work well for the controls. You know that you, the inputs that you need for the the game and then buy a controller that has back paddles on it too. I'm like, okay, was the 13 buttons that are on this thing not enough? Now we need like 15, 17, whatever it is, which I think on some, in some regard, yeah, that could make a cool experience if you can really grok the controls and really get into it. You know, if you invest the time, another level, the games that we grew up with, I'm not saying it's the best way, but we grew up with a game with a D-pad and two buttons, right? And had these awesome experiences on. And I still do when I'm playing a Game Boy or an old NES game, like, I don't know. There's a brilliance and simplicity there. And even new games that only allow for maybe a single input or two inputs, and they're creating something that's, that's you know, magical. I've talked about Journey on the show before. I don't know if you've played Journey mm-hmm. at all, but mm-hmm. basically, move, you know, movement and a button to make like a, a chirp or a call to people and then one to maybe jump. So it's like basically, a, you know, two buttons in and in in direction, or if I remember it correctly. But the experience was just so mind-blowing. Not that say that that's a game you're going to keep going back to and investing hours and hours and hours into, but like it just goes to ex- show what simplicity can do, right? Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. And I, I, I guess I say just bless the people who have the time to play 80-hour games. Like, <laughs> like I... I, I just I don't know how this industry sustains itself. They're not listening making, to this. Yeah, they're playing their game. Well, no, they listen to podcasts as they play games. Oh, yeah. right, right. Okay. And watch shows at the same time. Yeah. Yeah. It, where Where can people find? I mean, we've talked all about the documentary and, and stuff, but where can people find you if they want uh, if they want to hear more from you or see your work, connect with you? Finds YouTube channel. Yeah. Is where it's pretty much all at these days. Yeah. yeah. Just type double fine into that search bar. And hopefully, <laughs> hopefully it will be the first thing that pops up. We can't guarantee it, but we're trying to train the algorithm to get us yeah. to rise up. Psychodicy is a good place to start. If you've never seen anything we've done, just type in Psychodicy, watch the first one, go for <laughs> Figure it. Figure out how to spell it. <laughs> right. It's one word. Yeah. 
I started at Double Fine. Double Fine documentary. Yeah. Oh, there it is. Okay, there cool. Go. Yeah, there you go. All right. Well, I really, really, really appreciate the time. Again, be extremely proud of what you guys have put out into the world. Um, Thanks, thank you man. so much for it. And uh, thank you so much for your time today. Yeah, thanks for watching. Yeah, and thanks for talking to us. There you have it, DePaul's Levering and Owens of Two Player Productions. Unbelievable work those guys and the rest of the crew at Two Player and Double Fine have put out into the world. Truly incredible stuff. Growing up alongside the medium of video games, I feel incredibly lucky to have teams like Two Player documenting and sharing what it takes to make games and putting a spotlight on the talented people who bring them to life. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend. The easiest thing to do might be to share the website, whybutton.online. It includes links to the most popular podcast platforms. I'd also appreciate a rating or review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else supports that kind of thing. It would go a long way to, to helping the show and keeping me motivated as well, honestly. If you want to get in touch, ask questions, or recommend guests, feel free to reach out to whybuttonpodcast at gmail.com or on Mastodon at whybutton at mastodon.social. You can also find me on Mastodon at kylestar at mastodon.social. This episode was produced by the wonderful and talented AJ Filari. Our theme song was written by Child Star, who's me, featuring my friend Scott Wilkie. It's called On the Same Page, and you can find it on all streaming platforms. Thanks again for listening to Y Button. And remember, when you press Y, ask why. Why?